Welcome to Compass, finding the divine in the everyday. I'm your host, Ryan Dunn. Michelle Maldonado is off in uh, Burundi, I believe. In this episode, though, we're joined by Reverend Mark Feldmeyer. This is going to be a profound exploration of God's power and its impact on our understanding of spirituality. We're continuing a series about challenging questions of faith. And in this episode, our key question is, where do you see the action of God? Mark takes us on a journey through his personal experiences and struggles with the conventional conceptions of God that he was taught to believe in. As we navigate through Mark's story, we discover how his encounters with challenging questions in academic studies, particularly those around the Holocaust, led Mark to question how an all-powerful God could allow such suffering. This exploration ultimately led Mark to a new understanding of God's power, one that is not really coercive or unilateral, but rather persuasive. Mark helps with the Odyssey, the reconciliation of God's all-powerful and all-loving nature, and invites us to consider new expressions of understanding God's power. <laughs> That's a lot, but it's all really uplifting and inspiring, so stick with us. And while you're listening, do us a solid favor and drop a rating and review. Reviews help our visibility and assist more people in discovering the perspectives that we can share on Compass. And let me tell you a little bit more about Reverend Mark Feldmeyer. Mark is pastor of St. Andrew United Methodist Church in Highlands Ranch, Colorado. He holds an MDiv from Claremont School of Theology, where he has taught homiletics courses, in addition to speaking at conferences about preaching, politics, and pop culture. Uh, guess the big three Ps. <laughs> He's written four books, including A House Divided, Engaging the Issues Through the Politics of Compassion, and most recently, Life After God, Finding Faith When You Can't Believe, which just came out in August of 2023. So let's get to the theodicy and a whole lot more on this episode of Compass. Pastor Mark, really appreciative of you joining us on the Compass podcast. How goes it with your soul today? <laughs> Great question, Ryan. My soul is good. It's a Monday. Uh, and so for many of us uh, in ordained ministry, uh, full-time parish work, it, Mondays are the um, kind of the days of recovery. And um, mm -hmm. I take Fridays off. So even my Mondays are pretty full. So I'm, I'm never mm -hmm. at my best. Uh, and my soul is um, is ready and open for um, for receiving on Mondays. So uh, we had a, a good day of worship yesterday and, uh, and, and just, uh, getting off to a, a new, uh, a new week here. Did you preach yesterday? I did. I preached yesterday on the story of Elijah and the call of God to lure him out of his cave and, and back into the real world and to get back to work. Mm. Um, <laughs> okay. And now here you are on a Monday. Yeah, we're doing this interview. Lucky you. Yeah. <laughs> well, uh, oh man, I feel kind of bad now that I'm starting off with such a, a big encompassing question, but it is uh, something that you've already addressed. So, so maybe it's a bit of a softball for you, but you've written that we have a quote unquote God problem in the modern world. Can you sum up for us what that God problem is? Yeah. I think I try to describe the God problem as one of perception or conception. 
rather than one of experience. And so what we know from much of the demographic work that's being done on, on Christians in general and younger Christians in particular uh, is that there's still a, a, a deep receptivity and longing for what we might call spiritual experiences uh, that wouldn't fall into the category of uh, sort of conventional orthodoxy, uh, conventional, historical, traditional Christian understandings of who God is. And some of that, I think, has to do with the fact that what we know are two things. One, those that are less receptive to uh, traditional understandings of God and Christianity in particular are those that are A, uh, younger, that is millennials and younger, and those that B, are um, more self-described as liberal um, in thinking, whether that's political, social, theological, cultural, uh, those that identify um, as being more liberal or progressive on issues, uh, both theological and, and social. And so what we have is a struggle with people coming to understand the God that they've been told about and taught about in their churches over the years. And that has been handed down over um, many, many centuries of, of Christian um, transmission. And so at the heart of that, my argument is that at the heart of that problem is one of conception, that we have these ideas of who God is, specifically attributes of God that we think are, um, that we are required to hold as uh, certain and uh, non-negotiable. So some of those attributes that we've inherited traditionally about God are about God's power, uh, about God's knowledge, about God's love, uh, and about uh, the um, the, the, the future that God uh, seems to have planned out for us in advance. And these and many mm -hmm. other, not, in, not to even mention conceptions of heaven and hell and God's judgment. Um, my argument in the book is that many of these conventions of God that we've created over the centuries um, are far more influenced by uh, philosophical thought uh, uh, and in particular, Western philosophical thought over the last 2000 years plus, um, then they are descriptions of who God is. And so mm. where I find in my conversations with folks who are struggling with faith or who simply don't go to church, um, they are less inclined to discount deep spiritual experiences, which they might describe as um, uh, spiritual adventures, uh, um, experiences that get them out into the world, into nature, um, uh, uh, meditational practices, these kinds of things. But they're all experienced outside the walls of the church and outside of a Sunday morning uh, sermon. So that's the nature of the problem, is how we've come to describe God and understand God conventionally, as opposed to how more and more people today are really living these these experiences of the divine that don't fit into those categories. There's a recent article that's gone viral, I think released last week or the week prior from U.S. News and World Report that, I mean, really just talked about the the cultural trend that you just just spoke to that um, mm -hmm. 
that there is a longing in a younger generation to have experiences of God, but it's also very individualized. So they are definitely seeking it beyond the walls, as you put it, of the the traditional church. Um, but still that same longing is there. And, and of course, with that then comes all kinds of questions about, you know, the knowability of God and what are some practices in which we do find ourselves in community experiencing God. Um, and sometimes when we're not able to, or when I think what's what happens oftentimes in, in churches is that we propose to know an answer. Uh, and when that answer does not work for somebody, then they tend to to leave the faith. Um, and our our answers can often kind of lean towards the academic or the thoughtful and away from the experiential, as you've put it. You did bring up uh, early in your book about going to seminary, this place where we explore God in a thoughtful way. Sometimes the experiential comes in. You wrote that you had become you went to seminary to become a pastor and in that process, you lost your faith. Can yeah. you describe the the faith that you lost? Yeah. And how I frame that is um, never in that experience going through seminary and post-seminary did I lose a very rich assurance of God's presence in my life. Um, there were times where that presence seemed thin and distant, but never did I find myself doubting that there was a God or even that there was a very real and present God in my life. But where the correct mm. occurred for me was around, again, some of these conventions, conceptions of God that I was told one way or another, and maybe I told myself this, that this is the God I have to believe in in order to have a faith that is uh, within the bounds of orthodoxy and not heretical, yeah. if you will. And so, for me, that crisis occurred around this um, this paradox, this dilemma that we would describe as theodicy. Theos meaning God, DK meaning justice, and the work of theodicy is to try to reconcile this paradox of God's all-powerful nature and God's all-loving nature, and to say, Bad things happen in the world. Bad things happen in our lives. And if God truly is all powerful, uh, why didn't, and God is all loving, why didn't God intervene as an act of love to prevent me or the world from suffering? And so part of this came out of my own experience in undergrad work. I actually majored in religious studies. Um, and so I was familiar with many theological concepts. I was raised in the church. I was particularly in tune with the um, the plight of the of, of the of the Jews through um, their 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 whole lived experience, but in particular the Holocaust, and trying to understand how um, the worst expression of genocide on the planet. Um, how 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 do we speak of God in that context? And so I had a particular professor that I describe in the book who, who challenged me on my own understandings of how an all-powerful God can also be an all-loving God. And through that process, understood that my understandings of the power of God had to change in order for me to affirm that God is indeed all-loving. 
And so that journey led me to new expressions of how we understand God's power. And to say that, that God's power is not one of coercion, not one of unilateral activity in our lives in which God's intervening in, in the everyday events to make things happen or to not make things happen for good things. Um, but that maybe God, the work of God is less coercive and, and more persuasive. And then we understand mm. that in our lives and in the world, evil exists. Uh, God didn't create this evil. Um, God simply gives us the, the, the agency and power to resist evil. And in the process, continues to call us or persuade us toward the good. Um, so that in every moment, both good and evil are before us and we can choose either one. And, um, and, and God, it's not only that God um, allows these things to happen, but that God doesn't have the power to intervene uh, in these events, um, in, in the events of evil that we would describe. And so with that, I could affirm fully the love of God um, that, um, that is present everywhere and always for all people in every moment. And so it was through the, the, the doorway or the gateway of theodicy that I came to then reimagine other uh, concepts of God that were less orthodox, but far, my argument is far more biblical, both Hebrew and Christian scriptures um, would validate. With the idea of God being this um, kind of divine inviter, mm -hmm. <laughs> there might be a um, a sense that God is a bit disconnected yeah. from the actions of of the world. That you know, God is kind of this divine watchmaker. Um, I believe you wrote about that as well, and and then invites us to be a, a part of, of the process. So, in in accepting that God is that divine inviter and God is active in the world. Have there been some moments when you've seen evidence of the movement of God or were there some God sightings mm -hmm. that, that led you into this new understanding of faith? Yeah. Let me, let me frame that response by saying my own personal experience has been that those God sightings um, often we only can feel a degree of certainty about them um, once they're over uh, in looking back. That may mm. be a momentary, like we just experienced this and moments later we say that was it. It could be that we experienced something years ago and look back and we begin to connect the dots and say what, um, what many would describe as this predestined, predetermined plan for our lives starts to look more like a, a broader purpose, if you will. This idea that God has for us about our ideal future and then persuades or invites, I like the language lure as well, or, or beckons us mm. toward choosing yeah. those best options for us in every given moment. And when we do that, we have these little, these little whispers um, to use the language of the Elijah story that I preached on yesterday, um, the sound of sheer silence, as it's called, or other versions, the gentle whisper or the still small voice, those 
are so often spoken in the small, the ordinary, and the imperfect expressions of our daily lives. And so I can look back and say, there actually seemed to be some purpose to me being in a room with a professor who challenged me on my theodicy that then broke open this new and rather painful and long journey toward reconstruction of my faith that some would call that providence. Um, I use providence more loosely because it seems like, again, God is, is sort of orchestrating rather than inviting. Uh, and I want to affirm at all times human agency in the pursuit of the God life. But but I can look at that. I'm, I'm a pastor today in a church just outside of Denver. I've been here a little over nine years. And was born and raised in Southern California. Never thought I would leave California ever. Was uh, pastoring a church in uh, San Diego. I could see the beach every day. Um, I get a call out of the blue from uh, a bishop inviting me to think about a cross-conference transfer to come to Denver to pastor a church that was, hmm. that was insignificant turmoil at the time. And a, a very important strategic church to our denomination. And so... I am inclined to say there's a prompting here uh, and I want to pay attention to it. And so my original impulse to say no uh, led me to some deeper discernment and prayer about how God might be involved in this. And over the next few days, I found myself persuaded to say yes to something I never imagined possible. So these are, I mean, it would be great to get a, a, a thundering voice, a burning bush, yeah, right. <laughs> a, a visit from an angel, um, or some words in neon lights in the dark sky. I think most of the time, what we encounter instead is this loaded silence of God, which is not evidence of God's absence, but, but requires us to listen deeply. Um, to where and how God is calling us. And uh, that's that sort of defines not only my personal life, but it defines my ministry as a pastor. Um, yeah. Well, if you don't mind me asking about that experience of call to Colorado, it, it wasn't an easy move, I imagine. Mm -hmm. You have a family, uh, so they would have had to be a part of this as well. And no doubt, I mean, church anytime family. you leave a, a church family behind, they're our feelings of mourning that accompany that. So it's not necessarily um, just a, a simple invitation to come from San Diego to, to Colorado. What were the feelings or the moments or uh, points of evidence that felt like a, um, well, felt like a compelling movement for you to accept this call to Colorado? For me in that moment, it was a, discernment around what my unique gifts are for ministry and whether or not those gifts were still needed in the current context that I was in as much as I love that space, mm. but knowing what the unique and very, very uh, deep needs of my current church were at the time and this sense that I, um, I could do it, that I had the unique gifts that maybe others 
Hmm. Uh, didn't have. Um, I was not the first to be uh, invited to consider this church. Um, and who knows, maybe I was the last. Um, uh, um, and that's fine too. But there was this sense of, of deep need that was being met to use sort of uh, Frederick Beekner's imagery of our deepest joys or gifts meeting or intersecting with the world's deepest needs. I take that language. I thought there was a, hmm. a very unique intersection there that invited me into that space. And and to my point earlier, I didn't know in the first couple of years whether that was the best move at that time of my life. I came in 2014. I I didn't know until maybe 2017 that it was a that it was the right move for me. I had I had glimpses of it, but but looking back I can say, as the psalmist says, what is it, one Psalm one one thirty-nine, maybe or thirty-nine, where the psalmist is looking back and and saying as he went through the sea, he wasn't sure, but looking back, he can see the footsteps of God walking with him. Um, I think that's how most of the time we envision our our future um, as playing out according to some purpose by looking back in time. There have been any moments recently that have inspired your faith or where you have felt like, oh, this Mm -hmm. has been a movement of God? Well, I wrote this book and, you know, the book is, has been described by a lot of reviewers as a new, more progressive apologetic, which um, is true. And yet that wasn't the purpose. Um, It was, is intended to be a book that is, one of both deconstruction and reconstruction. And almost daily, I hear from readers um, from around the country who email me and and indicate where it was and certain points in the book that touched them and that helped them. I have conversations uh, every Sunday with people uh, at my current church at St. Andrew who, who say, I, you know, I didn't have the words to give voice to this experience and you're helping me do that. Um, I, I, I take mm, immense yeah. pride and joy and delight in, in that feedback where I know I'm walking beside people and I'm not too far ahead of people um, in this journey and that they find some resonance and um, some connection with, with what I'm trying to do. That inspires me personally to continue to do the work I'm doing um, and, and to enter into these these new spaces about how we understand God, to give ourselves permission to do that. I've come to see that most of our experiences with God are, as to use that old sort of cliche, uh, like the, the blind man reaching and feeling around different parts of the of the elephant and trying to describe the elephant is and and you know a lot of christians they get together and and one of us is feeling the trunk and it feels soft and even moist and others are feeling like a tusk and it feels sharp and smooth and hard and others feel a you know a leg and it's leathery and and we're all naming this this experience where where we fail is that we stop exploring the elephant we just stop with the first thing we feel and we describe that as god when the journey of faith is to continue to explore 
And when we do that, we, we find less division in our conversations about faith, for that matter, about how God works in the world and how, why our world is the mm. way it is. And we have more conversation about what your experience means to mine and where I might go next to explore. Um, I, my personal life is one that says I want to continue to feel around that elephant and continue to describe it the best I can. And to walk with people who are doing that too. Yeah. How do you name that as a value for your faith community, for your congregation? Do you find that it's it's something that you have to keep reminding people of like, oh, we're all, you know, to continue on the analogy that we're all feeling around the elephant yeah. and we're going to have our different experiences? I think the work that we've done at, at St. Andrew is one where one of our great values is discovery. And one of the points of a real concern for us as a people is around certainty. And so as Anselm of the 10th, 11th century said, you know, theology is, as he described it, faith seeking intelligence or understanding. I think in the modern world, we've transcribed that to mean faith seeking certainty. And we reach a point of certainty. Mm. That's where we stop growing as people of faith. And so a, a big part of my, my preaching and my teaching is, is one of saying faith-seeking understanding is, is the work that we need to be doing. And not only understanding as it relates to the mind, but faith-seeking experience. And the deeper we get into real lived human experience to get outside of our brains and in, onto our feet using our hands, example would be last summer I took a group of young adults, uh, a dozen young adults from my congregation. We went to walk a portion of the Camino de Santiago in Spain, um, um, a thousand-year-old pilgrimage trail that Christians have been, have been walking. Um, and there was no sort of, there, there was no deliberate, intentional, educational component to that except along the way, we're going to walk, we're going to talk. When we're finished, we're going to do a, mm. a spiritual exercise. When we begin, we'll do a spiritual exercise. But let's get on our feet. Let's get into the world. Um, and out of that experience, I think we all felt some transformation that, um, that we couldn't do inside the walls of our church in, in the pews. Um, so again, it's, it's another part of the elephant. Yeah. And again, it seems to pull back to that experiential where the only, I guess the only named objective that it seemed that you had on that trip was just yeah. to provide an experience that may lead to yeah. a sense of, of God's movement. I feel like we're going to have to link the sermon that you just yeah. gave last weekend, because I'm going to go back and talk about it again, but you were preaching about Elijah and and in order to have that kind of experience, uh, it seemed that Elijah yeah. retreated to a cave, right? That's what allowed Elijah the space to to kind of reflect on, on God's movement. Are there any specific habits or specific spiritual practices that you employ regularly, you know, maybe more often than, than your pilgrimage to Spain, that help you cultivate an awareness of God's presence, very presence or about, movement? Um, holding a diversity of practices um, that uh, that don't allow me to fall into some predictable pattern because what those patterns and habits 
we can mm. immediately either get legalistic about it or and and that fades into sort of this this boredom around what we do so i try to mix it up i um a few things that that tend to work really well for me uh, in, in connecting me with the divine um i i have practices of or i follow the um the, the a portion of the daily offices which is just i don't do there are three daily offices throughout the day you can do just one which i do uh, a simple prayer a quick scripture reading a time for reflection um that that has worked historically really well for me um not lengthy practices but uh, moments where i can regather myself um i i take breathing and practices of breathing seriously um, i i use an app to do that because um it forces me to slow down um i do walk and and i'm a habit cyclist mm -hmm. and so these uh, getting into my body is really important because i tend to live in my head uh, that's just the way I'm wired. And so the more physical I can get, uh, the more I seem to access uh, spiritual uh, energy. And um, uh, I, when I have a chance, I do some fly fishing. And uh, here in Colorado, to be out um, in the mountains and uh, there's nobody around to listen, to hear, to feel, to sense every sensory um, is is touched there and so those are important and i would say that the last one and these maybe this doesn't seem like a practice but i've tried to make it a practice i did i do a lot of sort of one-on-one -on -one with people in my office they're going through a crisis or uh, a transition in their life uh, or having questions and i try to encounter the other in these moments at, through spiritual practice to be present um, to be uh, deeply mindful of the other, to ask questions that invite the other, invite me into their space. And so as maybe odd as it sounds, conversation with the other is for me a spiritual practice where hmm. I acknowledge uh, in my own mind that the one before me is, um, is an expression of the divine and how do I find that connection? That's reassuring to hear from a, a person in leadership, because it seems that you're approaching these conversations with a sense that you have something to receive you know, one, from the other uh, person. In the book, I, I described one individual who had a significant impact on me, and I only knew him by his first name. His name was Thomas, and he was a um, basically a wandering preacher who had no home in Southern California and would come to visit me once a month. And his only request was that he could pray over me and bless me. And um, Thomas and I had this unlikely remarkable friendship for about five years. And, um, and it was because I was open to this stranger who didn't look like me, whose story was completely unlike mine, well, at least from outward appearances. And yet, um, uh, came with a deep sense of um, grace and uh, invited me uh, to receive. And so I learned a lot from Thomas and I try to continue that uh, tradition. 
Well, Pastor Mark, thank you for lending your time to us today and for uh, lending your wisdom. <laughs> we have been hopefully open and receiving here as well. It's been a, a pleasure speaking with you and uh, touching on some of the things that you lift up in life after God. Is a good place to get a hold of you or to follow up on some of the things yeah, that you're uh, working Mark on? Feltner. Uh, com is your uh, website. Is my website. You can learn a little bit more about me, and I always post uh, material there that people can download. And uh, and the St. Andrew website, which is gosaintandrew.com, um, has all my messages that are easy to find, and uh, both video and uh, audio. Perfect. Thanks. For uh, thank you for joining us on this episode of Compass. Hey, if you found this episode meaningful, I definitely think that you're going to like our episode with Josh Scott about making sense of the Bible. It was episode 117. And episode 107 with Casey Tigret about restlessness and faith is going to connect well, too. I'm Ryan Dunn. Michelle and I will be back in another two weeks with a fresh episode of Compass. Compass is a production of United Methodist Communications. You can find out all about Compass and see notes and other episodes at umc.org slash compass. Talk to you in a couple weeks. Peace.